So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. As we continue to learn about the dangers, and this morning, the damning of false teachers. It's a strong word, I know, but I think you'll see how it arises out of the text as we read God's word, beginning in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Amen. We'll stop there this morning. Let's pray and ask God one more time to help us. So we do, our Father, we recognize that Naturally, we resist your word. We understand more than that, that there's a spiritual war on. That Satan certainly does not want these truths to be made known. And so we would ask in your kindness and grace that your own Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of these words, as you dwell now in and among your people, that you would be pleased O God, by your Spirit, to deeply impress these things upon our hearts. And that you might today save some among us from the judgment to come. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Beginning this morning in chapter 2, verse 3, the second half of the verse. And as I read it, you notice that it's one long sentence. It's one long if-then statement. Namely, proving that God's judgment upon false teachers is not inactive or asleep. 
And if God judged, as he did in these three instances, these evil angels, the world in the day of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot, if that is true, then God knows how to judge the ungodly. Peter, remember in John 21, before Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostle Peter had received from his beloved Lord a very precious and personal charge, a duty. With Jesus looking Peter in the eyes, Jesus three times in different forms impressed upon Peter that Peter was to shepherd Jesus' sheep, to tend them, to feed them. Now Peter, knowing that he is about to die, an old man who is about to experience a martyr's death, he's looking around the Roman Empire where the gospel has spread wonderfully and miraculously. And he is rejoicing in that, and he knows that there are many believers. He's met them. He's been to their churches. He's ministered to them. He's witnessed both Jews and Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus. But at the same time, towards the end of his life, shortly before his martyrdom, he is witnessing with grief in his heart an explosion of false teaching, false teachers coming from without the church and rising up from within. And so he writes this letter, the last letter he writes before his martyrdom. And he writes with a pastor's heart, a shepherd's heart. He's the apostle. He's being carried along and writing what he's writing ultimately as the very word of God. And he writes with a shepherd's heart, warning true believers of his day and of our day and of every day until Christ is king on this earth. He's warning us with the most severe warning possible that Christ's sheep avoid false teachers, remove themselves from false teaching, like Lot fled from Sodom and Gomorrah, like Noah escaped with his family in the ark, separate from false teachers and false pastors. And do not believe the lie that the coming of Christ is, and the judgment of God may never come. And do not believe the lie that somehow grace of God permits us to live how we want, These are lies that come from these false teachers who are themselves sensual. That is, they're worldly. They just really care about position, title, influence, likability, popularity. They are often, frequently, according to God's word and according to, unfortunately, experience as we witness so many false teachers in our day. They are those who are caught up with immorality and ungodly sexuality. Peter is warning. Writing what he's writing, not with a personal vendetta, 
He's not a man, Peter, with a personal hobby horse on judgment and hell. He's not a fire and brimstone preacher. Rather, in contrast to these false teachers who speak false words, let this sink in. He is simply speaking the truth. This isn't for impact or experience. He, filled with the Holy Spirit, is speaking the absolute, inerrant, infallible, objective truth. And the truth is that judgment of the most severe manner is coming upon false teachers, false pastors, and with them, all the ungodly and those who practice unrighteousness. Do you see this in verse 6? He said, this was an example, the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah to those who would live ungodly lives. So it's the false teacher, but it expands to those who live ungodly lives. And then in verse 9, the description expands to include the unrighteous. And so there is a particular warning to those who have the audacity to, in the name of Jesus, depart from the inerrant word of God and speak words of their own imagination to Christ's sheep. There is a particular severe warning for those But along with them in this passage, there is a general warning to all those who would live ungodly and unrighteous lives. It is so important for us to hear this text this morning. Because hardly anyone believes in the judgment of God anymore. Hardly anyone does. Certainly not in the culture. Hell is a joke. Damnation is a joke. But even in the professing church, hardly anyone believes in judgment anymore, which is a telling sign of how accurate the scriptures are in telling us how prevalent false teachers and false pastors have become. This morning you have all around professing evangelical churches where you have people who consider themselves to be evangelical conservative Christians who have not heard a sermon or a message on the judgment of God and on hell for years, maybe even decades. And that is not an overstatement. And yet here it is in 2 Peter. You were to turn over to Jude, there you would find it. You would find it in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, the writings of Paul. You find in the entirety of the Old Testament, God's warning of judgment, his enactment of judgment upon the three instances that we have in the text this morning, but many others, his judgment upon Israel, his judgment upon Judah. And then we have the Bible ending with the book of Revelation, which has a little bit of judgment in it. So ask yourselves this morning, how is it that men and women can sit in professedly Christian, even conservative evangelical churches, and go month after month, year after year, 
even decade after decade, without hardly ever hearing about the judgment of God. It's in the book. It's in the text. And the answer, of course, is because somewhere along the line, some pastor, some teacher decided that that part, those parts of the Bible, which is a lot of it, are unfit for Christ's sheep. And so you see what's really happened is evangelical churches, in many cases, have become, have been fed an evangel, a gospel of a different kind. Where once the true gospel was preached, now the evangel, that is the good news, the gospel, has been changed. The good news in those churches now is no longer that God saves sinners from judgment and hell. Oh no, that, that's, that's not the gospel anymore. No, the good news now is that God saves from a lonely, unfulfilled, purposeless life. With no mention of being saved from judgment. You wonder why so much of Christianity is so shallow. Characterized by so little gratitude to God. So this morning we need to apply ourselves and listen to what the Holy Spirit says about the judgment of God. I do want to encourage you at the outset that along with the judgment of God, we learn in this text of the preservation of God, the salvation of God. And we will end there this morning. And it's so fitting that we're coming to the Lord's table after this message. Because Christ, as we sang, offered up himself for sinners. God sent his Son for sinners who trust in him to be safe and to be a refuge. say at the outset this morning, if you are not sure you are in Christ, you ought to be uncomfortable this morning. You should be. It's actually sane to be so. And I trust that not only will you be uncomfortable, but I pray that this morning that you will, at some point even in this message, in your heart, Call upon God to be saved and trust in Jesus Christ. First of all, I want you to see in chapter 2, verse 3, the second half of the verse, that God's judgment is active and awake. Active and awake. We know these days with our our gadgets and our uh, different technological tools we have around the house or maybe in the car, we know it is for, what, for something to go to sleep, um, to go on idle, to save power. And many today think that God's judgment is maybe something that he did or acted upon in the Old Testament. Maybe he will sometime in the future, but many think that God's judgment is a myth. Maybe even God himself is asleep. But look with me at chapter 2, verse 3. Their judgment, speaking of the false teachers from long ago, is not idle. Meaning, long ago there, 
the judge is an eternal judge. This is not a judgment that's just popped up out of nowhere. God has declared his laws. He has been clear on who he is, on his ways, on what he expects, in particular of those who teach his people. It's not idle. In other words, it's, it's not on sleep mode. Active, and their destruction is not asleep. God is not a sleeping guard dog. And it should strike terror in your heart this morning if you're apart from Christ, that even when you close your eyes and you asleep, that the judgment of God is wide open looking at you. This is the judgment that's upon false teachers. They often come across as really jovial guys. And it's, it's good to be rejoiced in Christ. I, I hope if you know me, I, I hope you find that I'm, I, I laugh, I, I smile, I, I rejoice in the Lord. I have fun with my family. Um, so godliness is not all just non-joy. In fact, far from it. Godliness is to rejoice in the Lord always. But these, these false teachers, these false pastors, they're often just, I mean, there's not a sense of gravity about them. They're, they're hucksters, they're jokesters, they're the life of the party, they treat church like it's a party, they treat church like it's their party. They dismiss the judgment of God. They dismiss any idea that they will be held account. Here we learn that Peter says, they may think that God's judgment is off far somewhere. God doesn't mind. Basically that God is dead or asleep. But oh no, says Peter, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and it is, their destruction is not asleep. God's judgment is active and awake. Secondly, God's judgment is absolutely certain. Absolutely certain. 1 4, For if God did not spare... It's the point of all these verses is Peter's demonstrating if, if these false teachers or anyone associated with them think somehow that judgment will not come, if God did not spare these wicked angels, if God did not spare from judging the whole world with a flood, if God did not spare fire coming from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah, He certainly is not going to somehow withhold his judgment. It is absolutely certain. These are objective historical realities that took place. The first recorded in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Who are these angels, verse 4, who sinned? These are apparently, let's go there so you can look together. Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6. Mysterious passage, but very early in the Bible, 
Jude also refers to this episode. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, those are in that context, these are angels. Angels are referred to as sons of God in the Psalms at times. These sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the first episode is these fallen angels who apparently possessed men and had sexual relations with women. And... In the economy and the law of God, for these, even these fallen angels, that was so far outside the bounds that God had set down that God immediately judged this set of particularly wicked angels, these demons, and committed to them to pits of darkness. Second episode or illustration you know well is the flood of the earth because of the wickedness that God saw on the earth. And that's described in the remainder of chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8 of Genesis. This happened. You, you can see evidence of the flood in the geography of the world. It's not a myth. It happened. And as for Sodom and Gomorrah, that's described in Genesis chapter 19. God rained down fire on the city. Chapter 19. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Lot was fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord rained on Sodom, Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Notice in verse 24, there's no question as to who it came from. This was not a matter of secondary causes in this case. We studied in Sunday school a few weeks ago, the reality, the Bible sometimes describes first and secondary causes. For example, Joseph says to his brothers, you know, they sold him into slavery. And Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The mystery of God's sovereignty. And, and sometimes he ordains things that come about. The, the greatest example is in Acts chapter 2, the crucifixion of Christ. Delivered over by the hands of evil men, but God ordained that it would be so. But in this instance, in Genesis chapter 19, there's no first and secondary causes. God causes himself fire to rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah from heaven. And to this day, they can't find evidence of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
The whole part of the southern part of the Dead Sea is just that, dead salt. So God's judgment is absolutely certain. Don't for a moment think that God is somehow unwilling, which is our third point this morning. Third observation from 2 Peter chapter 2. God's judgment is willful and determined. Willful and determined. He did not spare. Did not spare. Again, verse 5, he did not spare the ancient world. No hesitancy, no unwillingness, no back and forth, hesitating between two different opinions. The holy, unwavering, fearful will of God to judge and follow through on it. If you've believed the lie of all the false teaching out there that God is only benevolent, only love in in meaning that he would never, ever actually judge sinners, you've been told a lie. You've had somebody teaching you or reading something who's taking bits and pieces of this book and forming another God that is not the God of the Bible. He did not spare these angels. He entered into swift judgment with those wicked angels who went outside the bounds that God had set for them. He did not spare the entire earth. I mean, I bet it was beautiful. The earth was fallen, but it was the earth as God had created it. Adam and Eve had gone outside the garden, but, but this was the earth that was good. And yes, now it had thorns and thistles and, and had death and it had sin, but doubtless it was beautiful. And because of the sinfulness of mankind, God was willing to destroy it all with a flood. And, and men and women made in his image, he was willing to drown by the untold number, sparing only eight souls. You do not want to entertain the idea that somehow, apart from Christ, God will hesitate to judge you. He will not. And he will not hesitate to judge these false teachers. Fourthly, his judgment is sudden. His judgment is sudden. These fallen, sinful, wicked angels in Genesis chapter 6, they didn't know when the judgment of God was coming. They didn't see it coming. The world in Noah's day, they had evidence that judgment was coming. Noah was apparently a preacher telling them the judgment was coming, telling them the way of salvation. They scoffed at it. And no one believed it would really come. A flood over the whole earth? What a joke. And as far as Sodom and Gomorrah, these were wealthy cities and apparently one of the most um, fertile portions of the entire Fertile Crescent. 
an area of, of high productivity in the world. And, and Sodom and Gomorrah was this was wealthy place, apparently, a place that was comfortable to live, luxurious, everything they needed, water to spare, coming down from Mount Hermon through the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River to what it, at that point certainly wasn't probably the Dead Sea. It was probably a sea of life. They didn't see it coming. But God's judgment came. And when it came, it was inescapable. Our fifth point. God's judgment is inescapable when it comes. Inescapable when it comes. It is sudden, and when it suddenly comes, it is inescapable. You can't evade it. You can't avoid it. You can't hide from it. These angels even, verse 4, I mean, if, if spirits, these powerful beings, if they can't escape the judgment of God, what makes anyone think that they could? God, verse 4, cast them into hell. The word there in that instance is, is the only time it's used here in the New Testament, Tartarus. Some of you may be familiar with that from Greek mythology, and it was a word frequently used in Peter's day in the Greco-Roman world as as a place almost below hell for the wicked, evil gods and spirits and most wretched and wicked of men. And God, when these fallen angels went outside of their bounds and entered into sexual relations with these daughters of men, they went over the line, and God suddenly found these angels, and God cast them into Tartarus and committed them to pits of darkness. They are in, in basically isolation, the prison of God. These dark pits are more escapable than the most powerful black hole. And the only prospect that these angels, these fallen angels, have before them is to be released to experience the judgment of God. They won't be released from prison. They will be brought before the throne of God. And in Revelation, we learn at the end, they will be cast into, with the devil, into the lake of fire. Inescapable. They're in pits of darkness. They are, they are bound. They are there reserved for judgment. And what about the flood? I mean, surely somewhere on the entire globe, there would be some, some crevice, some cave, some mountain, maybe Everest, where you could hide. Certainly, you would think that there would be somewhere on the entire globe where there would be somewhere safe enough if you wanted to escape the judgment of God. And in reality, there was only one safe place, and it was a large Ark, a massive wooden boat. And it was the only safe place on the entire planet. Inescapable. Didn't matter if you went to the highest mountaintop, the flood covered that. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Everybody's going along, having a great day, and suddenly they look up. And they see not, not clouds of rain. Clouds of fire. 
and fire and brimstone like a massive volcano, but there is no volcano right around that area, so it's clearly directly from God and from heaven, is showering down upon them, and there is nowhere to escape. In fact, only Lot and his daughters escaped. Do you remember that? His wife looked back, instantly turned into a pillar of salt. Judgment. I know some of us are confused when the text says, describes Lot as a righteous man. Verse 7. We know that he was actually a rascal, and in some instances, uh, we, we have serious questions about Lot's character. And yet, he's characterized as righteous, and we want to trust the spirit probably knows best, knew the heart of this man. And interesting that when everybody else scoffed at what the angels told about the impending judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot believed it. Lot left his family. Lot, Lot I mean, he warned his family, but he, he believed it. He did not turn back. He was, at the end of the day, a righteous man. He escaped, along with his two daughters. But only they escaped. God's judgment is sudden, and God's judgment is inescapable. Don't think that you can escape it. Sixth, God's judgment is fearful. Literally, cataclysmic. There's a Greek word used in this passage describing the judgment of God. And you know this Greek word, cataclysmos. You can pick up on it. Cataclysmic. The judgment of God, God's judgment is fearful. The angels who sinned were placed in Tartarus. They are kept there in darkness. As I said, their only future prospect is to be brought before the judgment throne of God and cast into the lake of fire where they will forever experience the just judgment of God upon their brazen revolt against God's law. The ungodly in Noah's day were drowned in water, fearful. And those in Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed by fire. Listen, there is nothing more fearful. This is a strong statement, and I'm not making any qualifications. So, so pick up on that. There is nothing more fearful than the judgment of God. Period. Nothing. It's not a joke. It's not something to laugh at. It is real and it is cataclysmic. We think today, and by we, I mean not just the culture, I mean somehow in Christ's church, we somehow have so neglected the Bible, so twisted the gospel, that we somehow think today that God will not cast men and women into hell. We somehow think that he won't, that he's unwilling, that he lacks the determination. 
and yet the witness of Scripture from the beginning to the end is that he will not spare. He will not spare. And when his judgment comes, it is cataclysmic. It is fearful. Two more points on the judgment of God. And we will close this morning on the only way to be safe from the judgment of God. But seventh, the judgment, God's judgment is intentionally instructive. He's not reckless in his judgment. He's not some God flying off the handle. What's most fear, one of the most fearful aspects about God's judgment is it's in keeping with all of his other attributes. His unchangeableness, his wisdom, his power, his goodness, his, his holy will. God's judgment is intentionally instructive. In other words, it's, it's not just a, like we might think of our anger, we, we flew off the handle. God doesn't. It's settled. It's thought through from long ago. And it is for part of the reason, it's not only justice, but to teach and instruct Anyone else who would dare to be a false teacher, a false pastor, or to live in the name of Christ an ungodly and unrighteous life. It's, his judgments in the past are meant to be a warning. Verse 6, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Do I have to live a godly life? Go look at the ashes, if you could, of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how important the distinction is between godliness and ungodliness. You want to live a life apart from Christ? You want to live just with the breath that God gave you, the, being made in his image? You just want to live the way you want to live? You want to chalk everything up to grace and what you really mean is license to do what you want to do, then you can expect fire like Sodom and Gomorrah. Then again, verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment It's a warning. God's judgment is instructive. Eighth, God's judgment is discerning and discriminating. Discerning and discriminating. He judged all those fallen angels, but notice that he, there's still demons on earth. There's still fallen angels, and God judged those particular fallen angels they couldn't say, well, that's not fair. What about the other fallen demons? No, God's discriminating. Those particular angels overstepped their bounds. They received a judgment.
Notice chapter 2, verse 10, the word especially. Especially. That's a discriminating word. You hear sometimes the phrase, all sin is the same. No, it's not. No, it's not. Do you have that in your head? Get rid of it. All sin is evil. There is no such thing as a light sin. All sin is against God. All sin is worthy of judgment and condemnation. But all sin is not the same. And a consistent theme in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, is that sins having to do with sexual immorality are particularly egregious and an affront to God. We could... We don't have time to think about why is that the case. I'll just point you in, the, in a direction. Men and women are made in the image of God. God made sexual intimacy as an expression of love, goodness, and beauty, and trust between one man and one woman. And out of that sexual union, God's design is beautiful in the, in the production of life and the gift of children. It's at the heart of of the beauty of God's design for marriage. And it illustrates and teaches to the world, ultimately, God's faithful, covenant, tender love for his people. So when we sin, particularly in the area of sexual immorality, we are going at the heart of, of what it means to be made in the image of God. And we are distorting God's good gift given, especially those who go after the flesh. And so false teachers of all kinds will be judged by God, but but those who abuse how often, unfortunately, have we heard both in Roman Catholic and in evangelical churches? It makes us sick to even think about it. Of those in the name of Christ who are called to shepherd Christ's sheep who have sinned against those under their care. Part of the problem in our day is, is that men and women, but men in particular, aren't scared enough of what will happen to them. It is absolutely horrible beyond telling God knows what has happened to so many innocent men, women, boys and girls. But one day when you see the smoke of hell, as Isaiah 66 says that those who know the Lord will, you will see what God thinks of it. You will understand There is no priest, there is no pastor, there is no so-called teacher who has ever or ever will get away with anything, and you will fear and you will tremble, and you will see the justice of God. God's wrath on those particularly who bear somehow the office of teaching and pastor who engage in sexual immorality, he knows how to select out. You're not going to be able to hide yourself in the, in the group. And there will be 
proportionate judgment, both now when individuals die, they are kept, we're told. Verse 9, God keeps the unrighteous under punishment. Right now, the Bible, Jesus indicates the place of judgment is a place called Hades. It's, a, it's like a pit of darkness, the same place of the angels. We don't want to speculate too much. We, we are told enough, but we know clearly that when those apart from Christ die now, they are not with God, they are not in heaven, they are in a place of holding, only to be raised before God one day to give account for their deeds done in the body. And I remind you again that the doctrine of hell in the Bible is one of justice. What that means is it's not, like I said, it's not indiscriminate. God's justice and judgment will be exacting. Each individual will receive according to his or her deeds, according to their deeds. That phrase is repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated in the New Testament, according to their deeds. There will be no injustice in hell. God's judgment is discerning and discriminating. And so those who, especially those who go after the flesh, it is a reference here to sexual immorality. Certainly, we know from Sodom and Gomorrah, we, we must say this, there is a clear condemnation on the sin of homosexuality and lesbianism. There's just an opinion article in the Concord Monitor this weekend written by someone um, advocating for, you know, LGBTQ. And you know, you know the deal. Somehow by teaching what the Bible says, we are now hateful people. But what is really hateful is to encourage a whole generation of children to engage in that which clearly, according to God's word, is an abomination. And you encourage it, and you, you make it into something to be celebrated. And so what we see now in our culture is the youngest children, led by those who are responsible for them, somehow to celebrate their own judgment. Well, is there any good news? Yes, there is. But the good news, listen, is in the context of this truth. The news is that God knows how to keep and protect the godly and the righteous. Pastor Peter in this text, he knows just like I do, he knew that in writing these things it would be disturbing to those who are among Christ's true sheep. He had no comfort for those apart from Christ. And I say this with a broken heart. I have none for you who are apart from Christ this morning. He's trusting him now. But for those who, 
in God's mercy and kindness, you have humbled yourself. You recognize your sin. You're like Abraham and like Lot, believing in the promise of God. What is the promise? The promise of God is that whoever believes in his son, Jesus, will not perish. Will not experience this cataclysmos. Will not experience a judgment, but have everlasting life. This is the good news. This is the gospel we preach. We preach salvation of sinners from the just judgment of God in hell. That's the only gospel we have. And it's not just merely escape from judgment. Jesus said, I say that I come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. We preach and talk about the glories of God's goodness towards his people to come. But we are not ashamed in this hour of psychology in the churches and of self-esteem to say to sinners, flee from the wrath to come. It's coming. Suddenly, when you don't expect it, and there is only one place of safety, and that place is not an ark, not a piece of wood, it's not a building. That place is a person. And God who would judge you is the same one who gave you this place of safety, this person of safety. And this person is his own son, and his name is Jesus. And if you trust in Jesus, confess your sin, repent of your ungodliness, repent of your unrighteousness, you call out to God to be saved. Oh God, can I please have Jesus? I need to be saved. I believe what you've said about the judgment to come. And I've heard that there's room in the place of safety with your son. Oh God, can I please be found there? And the good news is that Jesus said, all who come to me, I will not turn away. He's a great savior for any sinner, any sinner who would confess their sin and trust in Jesus. You will be safe. For God, who knows, of course, we've learned in the text how to judge, is also the God who knows, verse 9, how to rescue the godly. He knows how to rescue the godly. And he knew, verse 7, how to rescue righteous Lot. God can save you. His salvation in Jesus is absolutely certain. You're safe. It's what we mean by saved. We need to recapture the meaning of that word. We, we throw that around way too easily. When we talk about saved, we're talking about saved from the flood of the judgment to come. And we mean being safe in Jesus. God knows how to preserve the godly and the righteous. Some of you might be frightened this morning. You thought you trusted in Jesus. You thought you were safe, but you're suddenly awake and you're thinking, boy, I really want to be sure. How can you be sure? Really, boil it down to two, two realities. The first I would ask you is, Tell me about your Jesus. Is he the Jesus of the Bible? Don't first look at yourself. Don't look at your navel. 
Don't look for some experience or feelings or something within you. You tell me about Jesus. Because there's the salvation. It's not in you. It's outside of you in a person named Jesus. Who do you believe that Jesus is? You can't save yourself. God can save you and he saves you in Jesus. And you just keep looking at Jesus. You tell me about Jesus. And if you tell me about the biblical Jesus, I'm going to look you square in the eye and say, you're safe because Jesus is a wonderful savior. You trust in him. You put your hand in his. He grabs you by the hand more accurately. You're safe. You just keep looking at him. You just keep trusting in him. And there may be a period of time where you're a little unsettled. You just keep looking at Jesus. You keep trusting in Jesus. And he's a great savior and he will not fail you. And get about the business of being done with living a careless so-called Christian life. And you get serious about the things of God and about loving Jesus. You live a godly and a righteous life. That's not how you're saved, but that's the fruit of faith. And if there's no fruit in your life from your faith of Jesus, I am not going to give you a false assurance of salvation. Because here the text says, God saves the godly. God saves those who are righteous. Well, how how does that happen? What do I got to (laughs) do? Told you. You look to Jesus. You trust in Jesus. You are made righteous by faith. Yes, Christ lived for you. We sang it earlier. And he died for you to forgive you of your sins. No, you're not saved by mending your own life. You're not saved by your repentance. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But those who trust in Christ as their Savior alone, their faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by fruit of righteousness. And if you're quibbling over, do I have to live a godly life? You don't believe in Jesus. Quit playing games. Because he came to save sinners. And if you believe sin is as bad as it is and judgment is as coming as it is, you'll trust in Christ and you'll want to please him. Lie to Jesus. He is a sure refuge for all who would trust in him. So I don't know who needs to be discomforted this morning, but I know there's a whole lot of people here this morning who need to be comforted And I want you to see that God is able. He knows how to rescue the godly. And he rescues them in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're shaken by your word this morning. We're disturbed. It's uncomfortable for us. And we pray that that would be turned by you into something good. We thank you that your word doesn't always comfort us, that it makes us sometimes uneasy and drives us to Jesus. I pray for any here this morning who have not trusted in Christ that they would do so even now. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, oh God, we thank you again for your great salvation, for your mercy. Who are we that you would save us And we thank you that we can go home today rejoicing that we are safe in Christ.
In his name we thank you. Amen.